So welcome everyone. Nice to be back after a week away. And uh, we are on the second talk on patience. The first talk, um, I forgot to start the recorder last time, but it's on videotape. Although the videotape of the first talk is not on our current website, but there's going to be an announcement today about where it will be found on our new website. So if you missed that one, you're welcome to watch that. So this is a continuation of that theme, <clears throat> patience. And may I say I'm growing in this one right along with you. It's not my strong suit. <laughs> if I were playing bridge, I wouldn't bid it. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, you know, it, we're starting a... Uh, something new uh, within the last couple of years at retreats that I teach. And what happens is that uh, I ring the bell uh, or the bell is rung to call people into the meditation hall. And um, what I ask them to do is that as they hear the first strike of the bell and there's three strikes to the gong or whatever the, the, the resounding um gong is that calls us into the meditation hall or into the dining hall, whatever. I ask people to stop uh, because the bell means one thing, but the purpose of the retreat is another. The bell is uh, is a reminder that you have five minutes before the next meditation begins or that dining, in dining, the lunch is now being served or whatever. And so uh, from the point of view of our worldly existence, we move from one stimulus and respond to that stimulus, move to another stimulus, response. So it's cause and effect right along the way. Dominoes just falling. So what I ask people to do is when they hear that gong, is to pause, is to stop, is to stop the movement forward so that you're fully, we fully participate with the sound, with the sensation with the hearing rather than just moving towards the uh, meaning of what that gong rings for. And we're on retreat. I mean, there's, there's nothing to really do, right? It's not like we have things to do. <laughs> and so it, but you, it's one of the hardest uh, forms that the retreat involves. People, I see, I watch, I, people, it takes a couple of days to get used to stopping because we're so used to relating to the next stimulus as something that needs to get done and pressured by the time element within that particular uh, bell ringing. And our lives are full of bells or symbolically things we have to do. And we move through the day from one thing to another like a monkey on parallel bars. And that pause, that simple willingness to renounce the trance we are in, because assuredly, uh, as I speak, this is a trance. It's a trance of thinking. It has its own a dome-like coverage of our life. And within that, everything has a logical sequence and purpose, and we feel the pressure and the stress of what the next thing that has to be done or the pressure or stress of what has been done, and we didn't do it completely. But in any case, there's this enormous weight that thought uh, burdens us with. And... We just move habitually through the day from one thing to the next, never fully arriving at what we are doing because we are, as I mentioned, leaving traces of ourselves on what we haven't done completely in our past, including conversations, dangling and incomplete conversations, as well as the pressure for us to think ahead of ourselves and prepare for what is arising. So this gong, these Gongs is an attempt to break that cycle, to step out of that trance. 
Uh, and it's, as I mentioned, very difficult to do. Very difficult to do. It's, it's, um, it's for a, a, a mind that is so conspired to think of, it, of the things that they do as the reason that they are alive. And most of us do think that way. We think of what we do, the activities we do, as the essence of the meaning of our life. Then to not do, to arrest the doing, uh, feels like we are um, we are uh, in direct opposition to the point and purpose of what we are living for. And yet, the meditation is about nothing else. It's about finding a new operative, a new way for this organism to relate to life that isn't conduced and inducted into the scheme of thinking ourselves ahead of ourselves or betraying ourselves from the past with the burdens that we carry. How are we, how are we going to do that? You see, if we just continue moving from one parallel bar to the next, how are we to break the hold that these things have on us? It needs a direct challenge. It needs us. It needs our. It needs our will. It needs our intention. A better word than will. It needs our intention. It needs our convincing that this is worth doing. And there's no word that does that brings forth. Uh, that kind of convincing quality uh, of both what we need to do and the assurance that there is something value in not doing as patience. Because if we've ever touched patience in our life, if we've ever been touched by patience, uh, it's one of the strongest, most effective moments of interaction that you can have. As somebody holds you within their attention for the mere sake of connecting rather than wanting something from you or being driven by a need to have the conversation and move on. And there is a real art to conversing patiently. And there's a real art to learning the value of patience, even though time and again we've been dramatically affected by it. In fact, I'm sure each one of you can conjure up a memory of, of a moment in which there was somebody that was really with you, that wasn't trying, uh, that had no alter, ulterior motive to their interaction, but rather than just to be present. And that's really, I think, the definition of patience as I would like to probe that word tonight. It's, um, you know, the, all of the paramis are an exploration. They, they uh, request an exploration of ourselves. The paramis are to find what's authentic within us uh, and not to be satisfied with the mere conditioning, reflective behavior that most of us live almost exclusively within. But what what is authentic? What is authentic in this being? And what if it's evil? I mean, we have to start out really by not knowing because we'll have to embrace every aspect of ourselves in order to find that authentic quality. And if we are thrown off slide, uh, thrown off sides by the display of of words that don't fit our vocabulary, our spiritual vocabulary, like impatience, then we're never going to find out what's authentic. We will be trying to counteract the punch of impatience by shaming ourselves into new behavior. And that will know nothing but create a shadow and a tension in yourself between what the habitual response is, which is an impatient one, and the need and spiritual intention towards a patient one. 
Now that's not authentic. That's just the regular turbulent way that most of us live, trying to better ourselves on the map, on the road of our life of self-improvement. There is something that we have to have, an understanding that we have to have, that everything is going to come at us. And we are, what we have to do to find what's authentic is to be authentically available to each and every aspect of ourselves as it appears. And that includes the side we like and the side we don't like. And that we can't pit one side against the other or we create a falsified tension between the two that never allows us to come to the deeper, genuine parts of ourselves. And we can so easily, within the paramis, create that kind of rift. And believe me, that is usually how they're taught. Much to our shame. But that's not the way that it has to be... uh, if we're really interested in what's authentic in us, then it requires a a tremendous amount of faith, really, to move into this thing and say, okay, you know, I don't know. I don't know what's on the other side of all of the mental baggage that keeps appearing. But if I offer it one thing and one thing only, then I will discover what is at the end of all of this. And that one thing and one thing only that I offer is patience to everything. It's the way we hold all of life as it arrives at us. Because any impatience is an invalidation of it. It's a a perturbance, a disturbance. And... Uh, a reaction to. So the only way that something can be held to allow it to be what it is and thereby not to be held within its uh, reach is by being patient with it. And all of us know that uh, everything is in transition. So patience really allows that to be seen allows the transition, the movement of life to be seen. It's the lens through which we can actually observe the movement of life rather than to react to that state of mind and uh, further disturb it. Now, when we settle with something and we just are patient with it, we are stepping outside of the falling dominoes, the trance of thought, mode that we're in most of the time. Which means that we are stepping out of time. Now, what does that mean? It sounds very mysterious, Einsteinian. Uh, It simply means that we are not allowing ourselves to be governed by thought in that moment. That we're quiet, we're still with it. If you think of what time is, Time, I mean not time by the clock, but time inward, the inward sense of time, is entirely thought-driven, right? Thoughts about the past, thoughts about the future, thoughts about the present moment. And when we step out of time, we step out of the mechanical way we think of our life in a linear way, moving through this to that going forward. It's that mechanical way we think, which is the trance that we're in. It's not the truth of life. Life is actually um, infinitely wide, not narrowed in a channel, in a linear channel whatsoever. Once we prick the bubble of our thought, this thing gets very big and very expansive very quickly. And it sees thought as a relative way to navigate the world, but it doesn't feel that it needs to be directed by thought. It can be informed by thought. Yes, I have an appointment in 15 minutes, so I'm 10 miles away. I better get my car and go. But it doesn't have to be directed by thought with that internal angst and anxiety that we place in front of ourselves as if that 15 minutes was real. It's relatively real. 
But as I hope to show tonight, there's another way to perceive time that doesn't have us in angst in regards to it, but rather living out the expression of time as a relevance of the moment, as a full embodiment of the moment. Now, as I start speaking about time, which I want to talk tonight, because you can't really talk about patience without talking about time, because patience is, uh, you might say, is a complete relaxation within the moment, and impatience is a feeling of being out of place in time, isn't it? When we're impatient, it's like, this is not the time I want. I'm, I'm, go- I'm trying to be patient. I mean, we're very good at that. We put the... <laughs> You know, we we really we really try, but we're not patient. It's the impatient mind trying to be patient, isn't it? It's like, but the outward, the outward expression of it is being kind of you know dampened down. Was that authentic? Not really. Not really. What's 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 authentic means when you let everything go? What left? What's left? I mean, if, if what comes is going to go, that can't be too authentic. I mean, something has to stick around in order to be authentic, doesn't it? So I can say, yeah, that's true. Something's true when, it's, when it is not conditioned. Right? So what we are doing when we are finding the root of each of these paramis is stepping out of the conditioned reference we have to the paramis. Because each word of these paramis has a, has a meaning, a relative meaning within the trance of thought, like generosity. My God, I'm not generous enough. I've got to start giving. I mean, all that is just our own uh, envisionment, our own... Uh, uh, translation of the word in terms of time. I'm not very generous. I've got to practice generosity so I can be more generous. What's authentic about that? Where's generosity in this moment? Where's patience in this moment? Another way to frame it, as I mentioned in the first talk, is this, is there patience for this too? When whatever we're feeling, whatever we're feeling, you see, you just bracket it further out. Is there patience for this too? Impatient. Is there patience for this too? Now the fence posts in the pasture have been discarded. So the pasture is very wide now, you see. There's, there's no, you're, not, you're not bringing the fence posts in and saying, okay, I've got to be, I've got to really... This needs to, you know, I've get, you know, and you just keep squishing this thing in, thinking that somehow you're going to make it pop. You don't make it pop; you make it explode with anxiety, because we're never good enough, and you can't squash yourself like that. We, the the field in which life can be known is expansive, is infinite. That's the only field that life can be known. You put up any hedgerow, you can see where I've been in England, (laughs) and suddenly you have a border or a boundary on which you have to translate yourself on one side and on the other. But let's look at this thing in terms of what time, time does. Everything we know is time. In fact, the ability to know is time. And let me just, I, I want to take you out there a little bit just to have you stretch a little. I was at this retreat in uh, Southern Dharma and I think I was stretching him too much because there was a look of like <laughs> sort of disarray on some of their faces. So uh, I'm very aware that uh, I want to stay within our ability to reach upward, but also to have each of us on our tippy toes, right? Because that's how you learn to to ballet dance. That's how you learn the art of ballet dancing. So we're going to, you know, so anyway. So when we look at what is time, hmm? 
We operate it like we know what it is. Is it that thing that moves around? What's that have to do with anything? Everything manifested that we know of, and the only reason we know of it is because we've experienced it before, and therefore everything that we see and know something of is a ca- we cast with the image of time. Just want to show you this. So look around and see what you know and where there's anything unknown that arises. We don't let even a crack of the unknown in. We keep covering everything with what we have known it to be. And we generalize, even if we haven't seen something, we generalize uh, the what we have seen onto what we haven't seen and thereby make it known as well. It's like an after image. That memory is concurrent with our perception. And therefore, every time we see something, the after image of what we know it to be is a concurrent statement within that experience. So to know something means we have a time residue in our mind. The residue of our past experiencing being played out. A time residue. And and then everything we take the world to be is within that residue. I just, just get a sense of that. And so when we live in accordance to what we know, then we have surmountable objects that we have to navigate through in order to live life. And we have bells and meaning that have to that are all about the navigation of the objects and obtainments of the world. And all that takes time. And culturally when we look at it, it's very interesting because I was thinking about it today, you know, we concede compassion as a culture, we concede compassion for precision and efficiency. Because those two things can't coexist. To be compassionate, you absolutely need patience. You need relationship. Relationship is a true meaning of two hearts. A true meaning of two hearts. And when there is such an emphasis on productivity, on efficiency, on precision, on getting it right, then the meeting isn't about the meeting. It's about checking off another thing you have to do. And therefore there's an impatience within most meetings, most interactions. I remember being in India and uh, attending some Dharma uh, exchanges um, and just feeling we would go to the chai house, which is a little tea tea house, you'd sit out there. And all day long, you would just sit there and drink tea and speak to your um, friends as they would come in. There was absolutely no sense whatsoever of needing to do anything. I mean, well, it, it, just, it was a completely opened life. It's good to start at ground zero and then build from there. And what I mean by that is that everyone should have, this is what a vacation is supposed to be, it's supposed to be ground zero, where you don't have anything you're doing. That's also what a retreat is supposed to be. Let's see what ground zero looks like. And lo and behold, most of our ground zeros, most of our vacations look like our life, just different things we're doing. Still filled with the same anxiety and purpose and tension, but now we've got to get to the beach. But we never allow ourselves to really sense a true ground zero. And going to a different country can be very helpful in that because it allows us to be free of the normal displays that get us uh, caught in, that reel us in to to the coma, the trance we're in, in terms of what each thing means and what we have to do in relationship to our life. So we step out of the culture and suddenly you have this open field and you have... So nothing is that familiar within another culture and you suddenly find yourself not having to do much. And you f- this is absolute delight that occurs and if 
I hope each of you have had the opportunity, either on retreat or just in your aloneness. We just feel this absolute joy of communion. You really understand Sangha from a completely different level when there is no edge on your meeting. When there's no edge. But I will gladly be uh, concede the point that we can't live like that and earn a living. But it's important for us to have lived like that in order to know what ground zero feels like, to know what the balance, to where the pendulum stops swinging, what that feels like. And so then, you never lose, once that's etched in our hearts, you never lose that reference point, even when we start bringing our responsibilities to bear within that, our life. And we start moving in accordance to the job and the satisfactions and needs of the job. But the true, but the true zero point, the true joy of life, you, you have to find it within the movement that we have taken to be the true zero point. What we have done is substituted this communion of spirit for this sense of self acclamation or validation that we get from the energetic need to have produced something. And so we look for social acclaim or professional acclaim or just the sense of uh, accomplishment, you know. You know, it's interesting because my job doesn't give me much of a sense of accomplishment. It doesn't. I mean, how do I know what you're thinking of me or even what you're thinking of my talk? I don't get a lot of that. So it's, it, you know, I, so I don't know. Sometimes I go home with Ellen and I say, I, I, I think I just blew it tonight. She says, oh, no, no, you know. So I, <laughs> she's very sweet. <laughs> but sometimes I really do think I blew it. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because what's, what's happening there is my neurotic questioning, my, my self-doubting is coming in to take me away from ground zero. It doesn't, in some ways, it's none of my business what you think of this talk. And I have to live with that. I can't keep adjusting to fit somebody's cry. I just have to respond with the greatest integrity and intentionality that I can. And that's all. That's all I can do. But I, we're having some work done in our bathrooms. And I get... They're in there in the day, you know, and they're doing what they're ever doing. And then they walk out, and I go in there and flick a switch, and the light turns on, or the or the faucet works, which it wasn't early in the morning. And they they can see what they did (laughs) in the day. You see, I don't have work like that. It's very interesting, you know. They can like, yeah, you know, yeah. The toilet flushes, yeah. <laughs> well, there's a kind of an envy in that, you know, because it, it gives you a kind of satisfaction of seeing the accomplishment. But life really isn't about that accomplishment, as satisfactory as it may seem. And it's not nothing wrong with taking pleasure in, in doing things. But when we live for the sake of that, what if you flush, pull the handle? No, Toilet didn't flush. Was your day ruined? You see? Well, there has to be something authentic behind us. There has to be something that we can drop to. There has to be some way to connect to something back there that isn't just a circumstantial reference of conditioned, conditioned reference. Have we found that in our life? Have we found that in our hearts? Well, to find ground zero is to rediscover meditation. To come to that sense of complete um, uh, well-being. Ease of well-being, the metaphrase. The ease of well-being. As a directive towards that ground zero. See, what... Meditation is the chai shop. 
You see? Meditation is supposed to show us not the advantages of producing something, like now my mind can be on the breath five times. It's not about the accomplishment of the science of meditation. It's about the art. It's about patience. It's about taking down the fence posts and finding a true expression of home. It's about the pace of life that moves and hears the bell and stops and can as easily step out of thought as it can into thought, ungoverned by the pressures an intensity that, may I say, are self-driven pressures. We think it's coming in from the outside, but it's our need. Without our need, we would feel no pressure at all. It's an internal projection. All stress, all intensity is an internal projection. Something in you that needs to be satisfied by doing it right or the perfectionism of them or getting there fast. And that, we say, the boss is making me. But the boss isn't making us. We're making ourselves. It's always that way. And if we learn the right vocabulary so that we can see what's coming back at us from our own mind's projection, you can say, you know, this is, I can either do this or not, but it's, it's me who's doing it. And that's called complete accountability. Pressure, busyness, productivity. But no compassion. We find perhaps a little rub of compassion when we're quiet and doing some metta and genuinely not trying to move and do something or have our minds a certain way. Because all of this reconfiguration, all of this jostling, all of this impatience goes to each moment, a state of mind as it arises, each moment, this moment, what I like, don't like, then just this tossing and turning like in bed to my left side, to my right side, to my left side. Each state of mind we toss and turn. Where is there something authentic? Where is there true patience in that? And so we think of time when we think in terms of productivity as something that's like a commodity, a precious commodity in itself. We don't see the endless, infinite quality of it. We don't open it up so that it's the ocean of time. It's like, okay, how can I save this time? How can I? I'm wasting time now. I'm wasting time now. Wasting time means what? What does wasting time mean? You're in a traffic jam. How are you wasting time? How are you wasting time? Is your life not as valuable in the moment of your traffic jam? Have you ever asked, why, why, is, why do I think I'm wasting time? Have we ever stepped back and asked that very same question? As if time could be saved or wasted, as if it were a product, something that we could contain, something that we could... I mean, I, I can't tell you the number of times in hospice care... I'll be talking to somebody and they'll say, well, how much time do you think I have left? What I really want to say to them, I don't, is like, what does it matter? Are you going to be more validated if I said four months, two months, one month, one minute? In Zen it says, the morning glory that lives but a single day is as radiant as the redwood that lasts a thousand years. That's patience. Like what? I need time to somehow validate my existence. And the longer I can live, 
the more valid I will become. Now that's a very sad life, isn't it? That's a life that should bring tears to our eyes. But it's also a life that should feel very close at hand because most of our lives are lived with that sense. You see, death, if we bring death into patience, if we bring death, you see, death ends time. Death eliminates time as an obstacle because it says this is going to end. So then you can get, we can get very fearful of what we do for the rest of our life because we know we're going to die, which is, which is a restless impatience, trying to get it in. It's the productive use of time, that the whole sense of using time to validate myself. Or we can say, well, it's going to end. God, you know, I, that revelation just hit me. So I'm not doing anything. <laughs> See, it can take us a completely, it's funny, it can take you, it can have you lean forward, or can you or just open the gate? And some people who are dying, it opens the gate. And then all of a sudden, a lifetime of, I, just a hospice story because it seems so relevant. I was with a, a wife of a dying patient. The husband was on the sofa and I was speaking to the wife in the kitchen. And uh, I heard a bell ring. The husband was calling her. So in the course of our conversation, she got up and went in and spoke to him and came back. And then two or three minutes later, the bell would ring. He got up. She got up, went to the patients and came back again. And after about the fifth or sixth time of that, I said, what does he want from you? (laughs) Well, he's just telling me that he loves me. And I said... I don't understand. And he said, she said, well, he was a truck driver for his whole adult life and he was never around and he never got a chance to validate our uh, marriage in a way that he now feels he wants to. And so he rings the bell to make up for all the things he didn't say to me. So the... These are real moments. These are human moments. In each of our spirit, in each of our, in our gut. You see, when we're not playing as if this thing were some kind of a, when we just take stock of it, when we just look at it, when we ask serious questions about it, like our purpose and intention for living, suddenly this thing opens up into a heart expression a pouring forth of what is truly important that has been held in check. By a mind that is conditioned to think only in terms of time. Yeah, um, Ellen, she does uh, some interviews with end-of-life people and she asks, one of the questions she asks is, you know, what could make your life more meaningful? And she's, what was amazing to her was not the answers to that question that most people hadn't thought about what was meaningful, what, was, what could make their life meaningful. They were just riding it out. They were just riding it out. See that and hear the voice, the choir? I'm glad that's simultaneous to our talks. And then, of course, you know, when a life that knows it's going to die is up against the inevitability of a life that has never really fully lived, then there's this uh, need to review one's life, to sort of settle the pace down, to come to terms with all of the traces that we've left uh, on everything. And 
that life review is a very can be a very sobering time, sobering time, as we reevaluate our life in terms of the life lived at the expense of relationship. Now, what we do is to try to keep, we have, especially those of us who are growing in awareness, we try to arrest these time moments when we are so out of ourselves, externalizing the drama of our life. And we try, but we then we have, so we have compartmentalized different segments of our life so that we can keep them separate from one another. So, This is my family life. This is my work life. This is my commuting life. This is my meditation and silent life. In these boxes, we try then to become a full and complete person living through each of these boxes. But by God, the boxes better not overlap. Somebody better not call me from work while I'm at home. That's an interruption of my... You see? This segmentation is how we try to cope with sanity. And it just leads to more pressure and confusion because what if, by God, you've spent this, you've given yourself 45 minutes where you can sit through the day, you go there and all you're thinking about is work. Terrible meditation, right? Terrible, awful. But what we find is that the demarcation, the boundaries of each segment overlap and start intruding upon one another. And we find ourselves being impatient because we can't keep the boundaries distinct and separate. Because there are no boundaries. It's all our time. When we fully imbibe in the spirit of it being all of our time, not my time for this and my time for that, and I have this is my work time and this is my family time, but it's all our time. It's all our time. It's my time to be at work. It's my time to be with family. It's my time to be alone with oneself. And as those things intrude upon one another, it's not an intrusion at all. It's just my time now to be have a call from work. So this thing has to open up to be fluid. For true patience, for true authenticity, to be able to be held, it can't be segmented. And as we open this thing up, something quite remarkable happens. As we step out of the trance of thinking in terms of linear progression, and if we step out of the way of looking at our past and the burdens that we are and have been and all of our flaws and unforgiveness. As this thing opens up, as this thing opens up out of its linear relationship, the sense of something being, of any thing happening in the moment. In other words, you say, three o'clock, I have to be somewhere. What happens is that three o'clock and where we are it when the clock strikes three are exactly the same moment. It's not like three o'clock is happening to me. Three o'clock and me are the same instant, the same moment. So time, life, in the sense of us, the sense of me, all are arising concurrently. Nothing was ever imposed upon us. That was always because of that reflective glance back. What time is it? I've got to go to... Better hurry. You can feel it. That reflective glance back where this moment should be and I'm not fully there. 
And then the pressures that set forth from that determined thought that I need to be somewhere else. The essence of impatience. So that's why the choir is welcomed. Because it's happening concurrent. Why aren't they, don't they know there's somebody in Bluedell Hall? Why are they? That's not concurrent. The fence posts are gone, my friends. The field is wide and it's big enough for everything and everyone. And we all happen to be located together instantaneously at the same moment arising together. Nothing is out of place in this world. That then is the authentic expression. Now we have found something that cannot be subdivided further down. That can't be waited for it to pass so that something good will arise. That it itself can never pass because it is and is the thing, the substance out of which all other things arise. So we have now settled upon something that is truly authentic. And may we all find our way to the heart of that space. Thank you. Can we sit for a moment? And as we sit, how do we sit? See, I always like to bring the talk into the into the moment in which we have to live the talk. It's not good enough just to hear it. We have to live it now. What does this mean for our meditation? What does this mean in terms of our activity? If we're truly dedicated and sincere, what does this mean? in terms of our life? What does it mean in terms of how I relate to the rest of my mind? How I relate to time? How I relate to the watch? How I relate to the pressures that come to bear if I step one millimeter out into that trance? I can. He says that when he realizes, when he uproots one of his uh, tendencies of, of, of uh, reactivities of mind, uh, he finds it a freeing but also painful. Not painful in the sense, what I'm hearing from you, is that painful in the sense of how you've been treating yourself. And there's a kind of grief reaction. And um, meditation is full of those grief responses. But let me assure you that you wouldn't have that grief response if you were still within that fence post. It's looking at the whole of where that post used to be that initiates the grief response. And so if that's the case, then so be the grief, right? Because you're outside the fence when you have that grief response. And that actually occurs again and again and again in the course of of spiritual of the spiritual journey. It's insight, really. You have an insight in how you've been living and you see the complete um, nonsense of living like that. And you think, how could I have ever done that to myself? And that but but to have seen it means that you're not doing it to yourself in that moment of seeing. Other questions?
Yes. Right. Yes, good. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. She says uh, she's just uh, had an insight about how she, you know, kills time waiting until something. Uh, and the again, it's a grief response, much like you were saying. What you, you really see that in yourself that you uh, we bypass so much of our life is just not worth living from our point of view. Because what is worth living is what we're waiting for to happen. And the problem is that even when that, what we're waiting for to happen, happens, we're not fully there because we are either suspicious that it's not going to last as long as we want, or something's going to go wrong, or we're not going to be up to or something. There's going to be some play of, or state of mind that comes in that takes away the full embodiment and joy of showing up. You see, you can't decide that you're going to live by the clock until something pleasant happens and you're going to throw the clock away. If you live by the clock, you die by the clock. Hmm? You live by the clock, you die by the clock. And so you're going to have increased pain even with that pleasurable moment arises because it's not going to, it's, it's of the clock. You're going to try to prolong it to make it, get milk it to get more out of it. You don't want to go back and have the life that didn't have that moment. So you're going to invest mentally in trying to expand it or increase its duration, all to one's own pain and suffering. And so, you see, what really has to happen is a complete understanding that. We have no other alternative here. It's not as if this moment had an alternative. That we could, by waiting through this moment, we would come to another moment, be much more precious than this one. Because that moment, when we see it, from the vantage point of having waited for it, it falls under the same pressures of all other moments. And therefore, it can't be fully lived. And so you say, you know what? This doesn't make any sense. It's a cold slap of water in the morning as you're getting up. This just doesn't make any sense. It's not really that deep of Dharma. It's not like, you know, it's not so subtle that you have to go on retreats for, you say, this just doesn't work. But you have to ask the questions. In order to arrive at that destination, you have to ask the deep question about whether it's working for you or not. Not just assume that it is for everybody else, but it's not for you. But you think, well, everybody else, it really is working. I'll fake it because I don't want to be the only one. I don't want to be the, right? I don't want to, everybody will, if I'm not, if I, if I say this isn't working, you know, it's like the king saying, you know, the king has no clothes. But everybody has agreed that the king will have clothes. So everybody says, okay. Then I must have clothes too. But no one has clothes here. <laughs> and it takes a sobriety. It takes, it takes that, you know. I, and you can see there are a lot of people that want to hear that this. Because it rearranges your life, it shuffles the whole thing around, your priorities have to change, everything, you know, it's like everything changes when you really address the nature of time and patience. But if we're heading towards a disaster of our own making, don't you want to know that there's a train wreck up there happening? That's not only is going to happen, but has been happening, and that there's another way that we can live. I find it refreshing when you hear the truth. 
it's always been like, I didn't always want to hear it, and I thought, God, this, this really affects how I'm going to live. This affects everything. But it was always refreshing. And it took me a little time sometimes to orient myself to what it meant. Like when I would have an insight about myself, jeez, I don't really want that insight. But I don't really, you know, you don't have, once you see it, you just don't have any choice. You're either going to live in, in a p- opposition to what is true or you're going to live in alignment with what is true. Opposition is going to create enormous amount of pressure, tension, stress, and pain. Living in that doesn't do anything but allows t- life to cooperate. You cooperate. You feel, a, you feel like you're doing things appropriately and cooperatively. That's what the feeling is. And I don't mean being good. I mean that you're just not in direct contrast to the movement of life. Other questions or comments? Yes. Yes, I know. Yes, she says that one of this is, 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 is that aspects of yourself that you don't particularly like come up, right? Is that what you mean? Right, it struck me as we were sitting, as you suggested sitting in the Yes. nothing about my surroundings disturbs me. Right. No, no, aspects of yourself. So you, we really see where our work needs to be, right? Now, let me tell you something that I'm just realizing. All right, 35 years into this thing. No, I'm serious. I'm just going to be sharing here. That lately, in the last month, there's been an edge, kind of an irritation edge that I just have not understood. And it feels like, God, what am I doing? 35 years? More than. Almost 40. And I I just have this... It's just like I, I feel irritable and I feel kind of snappy. And I realize that this, I mean, it just, I am realizing this isn't a full insight, but it's an insight that's coming to, to, to clarity. That my heart depends upon this level of acceptance. You can, you can, exp- you can not, you don't fake it. You just, Bring your heart out at every level of sensitivity, every level of, of, of your understanding. But that just keeps the, 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 the water just keeps seeping down. And it gets to a new level of disturbance in which this hasn't been okay, but it's been so grossly, uh, uh, covered. And I don't mean grossly because it's very subtle. It's just like, you know, just your mood is just a little... I just don't feel like I'm in harmony. You know, for me, harmony is like a key word. So you take the harmony and you just... And then suddenly it just... The waters just get a little... Just the edge of turbulence. And you go, wait a second here. The, and then I spring back and I say, you know, this isn't... Spiritual to ha- I mean, it doesn't feel spiritual. See, I put an objection, and that's the reason that it's all, that it'll be the base, my base camp, until I, this is it. I accept this. This is it. And I'm willing to be nasty the rest of my life. <laughs> Much to your surprise. <laughs> but I am. I mean, I know, I know that I have to surrender to that extent in order to move through it. And I have to really be willing. It's not like, okay, if I surrender, it'll go away. I don't know at this level. I know at the other levels, but this level, I don't know. It never stops. So wherever, whatever is arising, and however we're defining what's arising, and however we're not accepting what's arising, we, we form a continuum of self. At that level. 
And it just keeps getting more refined. So wherever you're arresting yourself, that's where you have work. We all have work to do to orient that and say, this too, is there's patience for this too. It's a beautiful mantra that expands you beyond the tension of the state itself. Is there patience for this too? Okay, all. Thank you. Can we sit for a moment or two? Then we'll have announcements. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.